0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast um, via Zoom are my friends um, Fiona and Terrell Givens. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Richard. Good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. We're delighted to be with you.
0: And uh, we're going to talk about um, their new book. Will you share with our listeners the title of your new book?
2: The title is All Things New rethinking sin salvation and everything in between
0: and um, i have been reading the book and it's just a wonderful book for those of our listeners that aren't familiar with fiona and Terrell, they have co-authored three other books that everybody in our family has read and loved the god who weeps the christ who heals and the crucible of doubt and they have moved from virginia Richmond, Virginia area to Midway. Share with our listeners just a little bit about how long you've been in Midway and what brought you out West?
2: Well, we have had a connection to Utah, to Brigham Young University for many years. I've taught uh, the summer seminar on, um, well, it used to be called the Joseph Smith Summer Seminar. It was initiated by by Richard Bushman way back in the 90s. So I come out every summer We've had several very uh, appealing offers to come here full-time. It just never seemed the right time to make the move. And then suddenly for both of us a year and a half ago, it did seem the right time. So we both accepted positions at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship. And we're just thrilled to be here as full-time researchers, devoting our time and energies to researching, exploring,
0: and writing about the Restoration. It's great. We're so glad you're here in Utah, and we love Midway. It's a beautiful place to be. Tell our listeners why you chose Midway over <laughs> other places uh-huh. to live in Utah. Do you have a, pl- a connection to Midway, or share with them? Where else was in the competition? <laughs> no,
1: no. I, I, I had. I, I told Terrell that you know we would move um, here as long as I could live in Midway. That is <laughs> I like. I like the um, the ratio of LDS to non LDS is. 70% non-LDS and um, I, I'm much more comfortable um, with right. those sort of numbers. It's also really, really beautiful. Um, and, you know, we look out par- um, across the park. Nobody would actually ever know we lived in a desert. Uh, but anyway, yeah, we love it here. We love our ward.
0: That's great. Well, mm-hmm. we love Midway and we're recording this podcast when it's getting a little cooler, but you're, you, you can handle that and... It's the beautiful. It's a beautiful place to be in the winter time. Um, share with our listeners about this book. The purpose of this podcast is to connect more listeners with this book, and I encourage our listeners to read the book to share it with others. It's a wonderful book about our doctor, our restored doctrine. But why don't you just introduce the introduce the book um, to our listeners?
2: Well, for a long time, <clears throat> our project has been to. Uh, to convey some of our great excitement and love for the restoration that has come to us through a a really focused, in-depth study of the restoration and that has been greatly enhanced by situating the restoration in the context of world Christianity and and the historic tradition of Christianity. And And the further along we've proceeded on this path, the more and more convinced we've become that we have done a really deplorable job as Latter-day Saints of fully recognizing, really, the the strength and the intellectual power and the resonance of the deep underlying doctrines of the Church. We came to feel that a, a section of the Doctrine and Covenants, 137, is really kind of pivotal in this regard, where Joseph Smith refers to the, the traditions of the fathers, to the chains and bonds that, that still bind us down. Um, he, the creeds are mentioned repeatedly by Joseph Smith as a problem. Fiona um, and I have learned to really relish the contributions of great Christian thinkers and individuals through the centuries. But creedal Christianity has really been problematic from its inception in the fourth century. And Joseph Smith was very much attuned ever since his experience in the Grove, that that there was something abominable about the creedal depiction of God. So in our earlier works, we've done a lot to excavate and describe a restoration conception of God and Christ. But we just felt we needed to to extend the project much further, that the restoration really requires a wholesale renewal of our religious vocabulary. And so Fiona and I set out to try to um, contribute to that project by very literally uh, constructing the beginnings of a kind of new vocabulary that we think should grow out of restoration doctrines
0: rather than just an inherited Protestantism. Love that. Um, Just give us, I want you just to keep talking. (laughs) I don't know if you want to give examples or go through the the chapters of the book or just can it, just keep ta- sharing
1: Well um, I, I think the basis for everything we have done is um, a recapitulation of the character of God and and that that was uh, of course in the God who weeps but really if you if you change the character of God, if you restore God's character to a being of absolute love, Um, whose um, goal is the immortality and eternal life, bringing immortality and eternal life to all humankind, um, everything changes. And and we both feel that um, as a church, uh, with this conception of God, we have been wallowing in uh, uh, an Augustinian and then later Calvin and lutheran um, idea of god as being punitive of being wrathful of being angry of being judgmental demanding you know he gives us commandments and if we don't obey them um we are punished and um that just did not settle well with a god who wished um to have peers
2: not not only that but Fiona especially, I feel, has been sensitive to how pervasive there is a kind of guilt and woundedness and insecurity and self-doubt that is just rampant among the membership of the church and younger people especially. And so we take very, very seriously the prophecy that was pronounced to Nephi in 1 Nephi chapter 13 by the angel. And we we like to use the 1830 edition because in some cases we like its translation better. And in the 1830 edition of 1 Nephi 13, the angel tells Nephi that in the latter days, the world will be in a state of awful woundedness. We think that's a really powerful and telling image. And the angel explains why. He says, on account of the loss of the plain and precious things. So it seems to us that what we have in that verse is a diagnosis of the problem, uh, an explanation of the cause, and an implicit solution. And clearly the cause would be the false Christian precepts that have been inherited by the modern world. And the solution would be to move away from those false understandings and more fully understand and recognize and embrace the unique doctrines of the Restoration. And so we feel that if our people could more accurately understand what is meant by salvation, by the fall, by sin, by justice, by worthiness, atonement, forgiveness, those are all some of the concepts that that we examine. And the the first part of our book is, it can be heavy going for some people because it's an attempt to give a historical background to explain how it is that we have arrived at our current state of understanding. So let me let me just give you one example of where history really becomes vital to understand this. Uh, the New Testament uh, refers repeatedly, right, to the principle of repentance. And in the Greek language, the word for repentance is metanoeo. But the translation of the scriptures that was made into Latin In the fourth century, and then was translated into English by the Catholic Church. So, the version of the scriptures that persisted in the West almost from the inception of the church until the Reformation translated that word as do penance. And that that translation is actually responsible for the Catholic practice of the, the sacrament of penance. But think about what is implied in that translation the Lord in that vision is effectively saying to us, you have to pay a penalty for what you have done. You have to make retribution. There has to be retribution. There has to be some kind of a penalty, a payment, a suffering imposed so that you can move forward. When in actual fact, of course, the Greek word metanoeo means to change your orientation to change your heart, to change your mind, to change your attitude. Now, we know that, we hear that in the church. We're, you know, we're not the first to point that out. But we do believe what we're saying is that kind of that baggage of repentance as a process involving penance still kind of permeates our consciousness. And so we think of repentance as a continual looking backward, feeling guilt and regret, for what we have done and feeling that somehow we have to expiate that crime that we've committed against God. Instead of embracing a gospel that is better represented by the Lord's appearance to the Nephites, when he says, repent that I may heal you. So it's not about paying a debt so God can wipe the slate clean. It's about learning to more fully embrace the change of heart to which Christ is inviting us to enjoy the, the, the fruits of the gospel that he makes available to us. So that's one example of where history has played a, a key role. We're influenced and, and tainted by that Christian past, and we haven't sufficiently shrugged off those connotations of a key principle. And so we're weighed down rather than liberated. Um, and, and so we try to extend that kind of exercise. As I said, through a whole slew of of gospel concepts and, and words,
1: um, we've also we've also discovered that language um, is incredibly powerful, and uh, the the early Christians, the Greek Christians, um, were much had a much richer language than Latin, quite frankly, and we're seeing the shift from so so the Greek. Greek language is so rich. There are four um, names for love, for example. Latin is sort of a bulldozer language. It's, it's not very exciting. And and the base of basis for um, penance in Latin is poinalis, which is criminal. It means punishment. So as soon as you start adopting a language with that as the root definition. Then it's 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 going to drag it that way.
2: And these these legalistic right. concepts became the metaphors through which the atonement was understood. Right. So you have people like um, Anselm, Anselm, and Tertullian. Tertullian, I was thinking of, mm-hmm. who were trained in the law, and so for them the atonement is this legal process by which we're brought before a bar. There's an accuser. We have to be defended. And, we have to have an advocate. There has to be a penalty, and and you know instead of instead of really seeing the atonement through the lens of a unique gospel restoration in which it's about Christ trying to bring us into unity and harmony with the eternal heavenly family
1: so yeah and and we also feel that uh, we have misunderstood restoration we have thought that the reformation was a step towards restoration when in fact the reformation had exactly the opposite um Impact. Uh, impact. Yeah, we 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 joke about this. You know, we say there was Augustine, and then there was Luther, Swing- Swingley and Calvin, who were Augustine on crack, because essentially they took all of the most demonic, uh, most pessimistic views of uh, God's relationship with us, our relationship with God, our relationship with other, uh, with each other, and emphasised those. Whereas when we go back into the East, into the very earliest centuries, to about the fourth century, um, we see a gospel that we feel is worthy of restoration, where, where everything is very, very different, where um, well, give, resurrection give, give rather a, than crucifixion. Talk about Irenaeus' conception
2: of, of what happened in the garden.
1: Oh, yes. No, this is really wonderful. Um, Irenaeus, He's an early Greek, uh, just a beautiful, beautiful man, obviously. But he felt... Second century. Yeah, second century. Thank you. He felt that in order to be made God, we first needed to become man. And if that is not a description of the genesis of our own narrative, I don't know of one. And and, and so he saw mortality as educative, not punitive. That was absolutely necessary for us to, um, you know, to come to mortality, and, and and so, and this is so wonderful because, of course, I'm a woman. But the idea of Eve has been completely overturned in our tradition. So Eve, if if, if this is, if mortality is supposed to be educative, then Eve becomes the heroine of the human family, and it is her courage and her um, love, not only of God but of each one of us that prompted her to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. Now we also have to understand that that biblical text has been altered quite dramatically, um, probably before Josiah's um, alterations, uh, modifications to the biblical text through the Deuteronomist is probably the most stark, but um, there have been, you know, all the way through, one can't leave a holy text alone, can one? Anyway, so we have this, ridiculous situation where God tells Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of life uh, or the tree forgive me, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Oh, no, he says, you, oh, sorry. Yes. He says, you need to have children. We need to invite all of these children into mortality. And the only way you can do this is by eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then when Eve eats of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, then, then God has a change of mind and is suddenly really angry and, and curses them both. Um, and we have to, when there are things that jar so much in the biblical text, we, we have to, you know, that's why I love the idea of searching the scriptures. We have to search for those things that are good and beautiful and true and understand that the scriptures are replete with those things that are not. And if God's behavior is not worthy of God, that is not our God. And so in in our understanding, Eve um, eats the fruit of that tree and they are able to have children. They're not having children without eating of that tree. And I think a lot of people don't read as far as Genesis chapter three, verse 22, when God says they have become as one of us. All other theologians, as far as we know, either say that's sardonic or God is being sarcastic. Um, But nobody reads it on face value because, of course, we can't. We fell. But in our tradition, it is an ascent. We can only become like God, as Irenaeus said, if we become mortal. And so, so it's very exciting. So
2: consequently, for example, to give another concrete instance, the concept of sin Hmm. has a radically different complexion in restoration understanding. Because as is clearly taught to Eve in the book of Moses, we have to partake of the bitter in order to know the sweet. And so sin becomes associated with bitterness. Sin becomes associated with those actions and attitudes and deeds that incur pain and are bitter.
1: Yeah, so sin sin is injurious
2: it's something that is injurious to us and to our relationships with others but sin in this conception of what happens in the garden is the inevitable consequence uh, what's the word i'm looking for collateral damage right it's the collateral damage of the process by which we become like god by having to be immersed in a world of experience and hostility and oppositions and 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 struggling our way forward in a kind of murkiness.
0: Love
1: that.
0: Really love that.
2: So so the atonement isn't a rescue plan Mm -hmm. to salvage a catastrophic failure. It is part of the grand design all along to heal the collateral damage that is incident to the main objective of gaining experience and becoming like God. So it's just such an affirming, positive beautiful kind of conception that, that has no room for, for self-reproach and self-recrimination and, and these feelings of inadequacy and failure. Shame. And shame. Guilt. Um, so that's another distinction that we try to make in this vocabulary is that, of course, godly remorse has a place.
1: But, oh, but, sorry. Sorry. but the difference
2: between remorse and guilt, as we would like to mm. emphasize, is that guilt is all self-preoccupied. Guilt is oh, woe is me, and I feel bad, and I failed myself, and i feel, whereas remorse is, oh, this is terrible, the pain that I have caused you i 'm so sorry, I feel so bad for the consequences on those around that 's the godly sorrow and that, that that the Lord is looking for, and that is inevitable as we grow in empathy and compassion
1: it 's also very interesting that. I think I think we all have to be. We have to reach a paradigm, or I think we're skirting on this paradigm. But I think it's universal. There is an incredible amount of um, really brilliant scholarship now being produced on trauma. And um, so, for example, there is that very disquieting verse in in the Old Testament where God says, "You know, the sins will be on your children." Visit. Visited upon Visited upon the children to the third or punishment probably until the third and fourth generation. Well, that's rather cruel and unfair. I mean, what did those children do? But if we re-examine that in the idea of trauma, then we have a much clearer understanding of what sin means. Um, And and we have generational trauma. Um, And all of us are born wounded, quite honestly, because we're we're carrying strains from our parents, whether you know mental illness, um, disease, cancer—we're we're carrying it all. So we really are, are starting off um, with a negative, um, because we're born wounded, and as we go through life, we experience even more woundedness. And so, what God is looking at, we believe, is is a really wounded people. And so, Christ's atonement has nothing to do with sin and very little to do with the cross, with the crucifixion. Christ's atonement has everything to do with healing. Every, everything Christ does in his ministry is healing the psychologically, emotionally, and physically ill
2: So this, every day. So this is where history plays a useful part in reinforcing this understanding as well. Because even now, in our own version of the scriptures, if you go back to the Old Testament prophecies about Christ, what is the concept that is foregrounded? Think about the Christmas hymns that we sing, that that, um, Christ comes into the world with healing in his wings. Um, When Christ makes his annunciation in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue, what verse does he quote from Isaiah 61? That he will come into the world to bind up and heal the brokenhearted. So healing pervades these prophecies of what Christ's role and mission would be. And hence, for the early Christians... Christ's role as redeemer was largely associated with him overcoming death and bringing us out of the grave. And if you look really cl- cl- carefully at the sermons in the Book of Mormon on Christ's role, especially 2 Nephi 2, the great sermon by Jacob, you find that it is resurrection that is emphasized as the fruits of the atonement, not rescue from hell. And uh, you know, I, I I tell the story sometimes of being a 16-year-old boy Having just moved into an evangelical community in the South, and I'm just accosted on all hands by the question, Have you been saved? Have you been saved? And I remember I wasn't very religiously inclined at that epoch in my life, and that only further distanced me from any interest in God. Because why should I start from a position of deficit where I need to be rescued from something that isn't my own fault? So that just never had any traction with me. But if somebody had said to me at that time, you know, I'm wondering, have, have, you feel, have you felt healed of the wounds and, and traumas and hurts you've experienced in this life? Well, that at least would have caught my attention. I would have thought that's, that's a question that makes sense. And only now do I understand why. And in fact, there again, vocabulary and, and Greek manuscripts become very, very important to this question, because it turns out that the word in the New Testament that is central in this whole conversation is sozo which is a word that can mean save or rescue, but more frequently in the New Testament, it's used to refer to healing. It is the verb that is used when Christ heals the blind, when he heals the lame, when he heals the paralytic, when he heals the the, the young girl who's died. In all those cases, the word is sodzo, which in other instances is translated as save, but given the pervasive pattern of its association with healing we feel that we would be utterly justified in referring to Christ as Jesus Christ healer of the world and we think that's a lovelier and more resonant image than this kind of you know vague kind of amorphous concept of savior which well, what does that mean right so
1: and also again you know we we do believe that Joseph was reaching right back into those early centuries, immediately post-Christ. And and people have described the Christian community. Uh, They describe the Christian community as being diverse and um, an egalitarianism that exists there that does not exist today. And also this um, incredible joy, incredible joy. And it was focused on the resurrection. And of course, they're much closer to that. You know, death was the end of things. But no, this man has come and has promised that death is merely something one needs to go through, um, as he did, in order to be resurrected. And that resurrection is universal. And so we have these beautiful stories of these early Christians staying behind in cities when the plagues hit and nursing, Not, not just themselves, but everybody in the community and, and they were joyful and 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 there there are um people who have described them as 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 dying with joy uh, because they were convinced that Christ had come to resurrection to to resurrect them all and yes. and we feel that the vocabulary is really really important. theology is important and if we emphasize as I think they did this this really optimistic you know, as David Bentley Hart has said, you know, Christ came into the world and made a completely radical shift, a universal shift, um, because we we're all God's children. But this idea of, of the joy, these people live their lives with joy. We're not seeing an awful you're, lot of people living lives with joy in our church at the moment. No,
2: but <laughs> you're, you're also introducing, Fiona, the notion of, of community. Right. And this is one of the really lovely patterns that emerges early on in the restoration. Think about the the vision of the tree of life that Lehi has. And his immediate concern in this tableau that opens before him is, what is is the fate of my children? Or think of Enos, who secures his own salvation, then immediately begins to wonder, well, what about my brethren? What about the Lamanites? And then Joseph Smith enacts this pattern, right? Right. The, the, the kind of conversion experience that he has is, is fairly common in 16th centuries through, through 18th and 19th centuries. Any number of individuals go into the wilderness, find God, have, find absolution from their sins. But notice what happens in the case of Joseph Smith. Like Luther and like Wesley and like so many others before him, he, he goes into the woods and he finds the Lord saying to him, your sins are forgiven. But instead of packing it up and going home and being happy ever after, Joseph immediately is called to the project of disseminating that message to a community and giving the name of Zion to that project of a salvation that is entirely redefined in relational communal terms. I mean, it's really, really quite remarkable. So that heaven, I mean, if you think about some of the The earliest conceptions in the medieval church that are still prevalent today, you can go to Dante for a typical example or any of the mystics, heaven consists of the individual caught up in a vision of of God, right? This face-to-face, one-on-one communion. And yet, for Joseph Smith, heaven becomes a society, um, uh, eternal sociality, he calls it. And so heaven, for Latter-day Saints, is radically redefined. It's not a place, it's not a state, it's not a reward. It's a quality of relationship that endures into the eternities. And Zion is the seed of that heaven.
1: So, so Terrell and I would argue that Zion is the end gold. And it's a global Zion. It's, it's not just us. Um, we are all children of God. This Zion will be global. There will be no Armageddon. there will be no apocalypse. Some scholars are suggesting that revelation should not have been at the end of the New Testament at the but at the beginning because it described the conquest of um and and the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. Um, and then somebody has and the also Romans. and then the Romans and and so some some uh, wonderful author whose name eludes me at the moment um actually you know described, okay, this means this particular Roman emperor, whatever, but it's not as we have taken it to mean, and I think a lot of this is evangelical may not. also, may not.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, he's saying may not, he's yeah. softening, and I'm saying will not, because, because quite frankly, if the world explodes um, in a cataclysmic disaster, God will have failed. He will have failed. Because his, as, as Joseph articulated, Zion is the end goal. And what we love so much about that is, um, and this is where our baptismal covenants come, on, come in, um, and, and we do believe that we have been invited by Christ co- to collaborate in the healing of our fellow men. And it's, it's through those covenants. Uh, we covenant to carry each other's burdens. We covenant to mourn with those who mourn. And we covenant to comfort those who stand in need of comfort. I can't think of a holier enterprise um, in, which we are in, in which we should be engaged. And as Terrell said, if we can leave behind, I, 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 you know, if Satan does exist, this is actually a really brilliant strategy, to keep us focused on ourselves, on our guilt, on our shame, and trap us in our minds with such horrors. That we, that all our energy is taken up, you know, with ourselves. We don't have energy to reach out to anyone else. But if we, if we, um, reestablish the gospel as something that is positive and beautiful, then these covenants that we are making, and, and it's not to say that we're the only ones doing this, obviously, um, everybody, uh, well, well, most people around the globe are in, in engaged in this exact same endeavor and God has many names, But what we found so extraordinary is that each member of the Godhead is represented in each one of those covenants. So the God who carries our burdens all the way through his life into Gethsemane and onto Golgotha is God the Christ. The God who mourns with us when we mourn is God the Father. And the God who comforts us when we stand in need of comfort is God the Holy Spirit. And so it's this beautiful collaborative engagement when we where we are working with the Godhead to bring about healing. I can't think of anything more beautiful. It certainly expanded my heart, my my mind and my heart considerably. This
0: that's a beautiful segment. Um I just resonate with everything you're saying. This woundedness is a word that I've really picked up in the last few years. And I've recognized more my own woundedness and I've been willing to be more open with myself and others. And on the outside at age 60 with the, you know, I don't look very wounded, <laughs> but if I'm honest, I've, there's a lot of woundedness. And I love your idea that we were born wounded. And that and that the gospel of Jesus Christ heals us. I used to think that was just some sin, but I recognize a lot of my woundedness is not sin related and right. it's trauma related and it's all these other things. Do we when I turn to Christ to either take on my woundedness and heal me or turn to him because of sin, do I add to his burden? Um or just help our listeners, because I think sometimes we're nervous about turning to God or Christ oh, because we're going to add to that's, their burden. That's such
1: a brilliant question, Can Richard. I... No, no, we, we don't. We we're and when we are alleviating it. So when there is no burden to Christ um, in carrying our woundedness, and this is why He came. Is, to, is so that we have the promise that eventually our wounds will be healed. Some of them will not be healed in this life, but it, but it's a joy. I mean, if Maybe. we think of ourselves um, as as contributing to someone else's well being, to contributing to someone else's healing, that is no burden on us. We we are, I don't know, it is a greater capacity, a greater freedom, a greater joy, a greater love. Can I? And I sorry. And I feel, yeah, I know, I'll let you in in just a second. (laughs) Um, But, um, and and we feel that that Christ feels exactly that way. It is no burden. It it, it is love and uh, because he can contribute to our healing. Well, actually, no, we contribute. He heals. (laughs) So could I
2: I read just a passage from our book? Please. That I think addresses your question very directly. And this comes from a dream that Truman Madsen relates and not every... Listener is familiar with Truen Madsen. He was a great professor of religion and a philosopher at BYU a few decades back. He said, we just come from a parched visit to Egypt in the Sinai desert. We had reminded our students of one of the few self-regarding cries of the Savior from the cross, I thirst, to which the response was a sponge of vinegar. That night I had a dream. I was beaten down on my hands and knees and was conscious of a burning thirst. As I lifted to my lips a small cup of liquid, an unearthly liquid, cool, radiant, delicious, I felt a pair of compassionate hands behind me, but not touching. This very presence near my head and neck created a comfortable, blessed feeling. And then the miracle. As I drank in exquisite relief, the cup filled continually to the top. The more I sought to quench my whole-souled thirst, the more it filled and flowed. A wave of gratitude to Christ for in the dream, the Comforter was Christ, consumed me, and the impulse was to stop drinking and turn around to thank him. But by his subtle power, the sweet assurance came that my drinking was his thanks. It was what he most wanted. It was his reward, even his glory. It was like the gracious host, hostess who takes great delight in seeing her family and guests eat heartily. I knew, and I knew he knew, so I drank and drank until I was full. That's beautiful. So, I, I, think, I think we alleviate his shared suffering with us when we move in the direction of his healing embrace.
1: And I, I think also um, we, we don't believe in absolute love. I mean, we, we see it in the scriptures. We see, we see it in the two verses at the end of Romans. That there is nothing, nothing that we can do, say, or be that will mitigate God's love towards us Um, Marvin J. Ashton once said, I declare with all the strength I possess that we have a heavenly father who claims and loves all of us, regardless of where our steps have taken us. You are his son and you are his daughter and he loves you. And then um, that that, that tells prompted me, I'd love to quote this too. It's, it's, It's from a friend. It was one of those miraculous things that Uh, just dropped into our lives as we were completing the book. Um, uh, By all accounts, she would have been seen to have lived a depraved life. She said spent most of her time on the dark net. And then one evening, she was in incredible pain. And this is what she writes. I thought of Christ as a condemning being who demanded blind following or else packed you off to a burning abyss. I thought if I would feel anything It would be the disgust of a being who had seen my whole life in detail, knew the mountain of things I had done wrong in his book, and was repulsed. Instead, I felt something that will never leave me. My mind could not have manufactured it. If I could have invented something so beautiful, I would have done it a long time ago. I felt that everything about me and my life, every moment of grief, joy, Heartache, trauma, and darkness was all perfectly understood, and none of it was condemned. I didn't feel guilted, shamed, or rejected. I felt loved, not in the watery way society often uses the word. It was deep as an ocean. It was rich as cream. It was without bounds or conditions. Wow,
0: that's powerful.
1: That's the
0: gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, I think about my YSA assignment. I served as a YSA bishop and I just wish I'd heard a lot of this stuff, you know, in my training the first week. And I, you know, one of the one of your life missions is to help priesthood leaders and help parents and help all of us understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repentance for me got really simple with the YSAs, it just became godly sorrow and change of heart. And it wasn't this penance time-related. That was sort of the means potentially to get somebody to change of heart and godly sorrow. But sometimes people came and visited with me and they're already there. There was no need to sort of add to the complexity of repentance by adding a bunch of penance. You know, they had already, through their own work, got to godly sorrow and change of heart. And, And I love also where you talk about this everything you've said about sin and repentance is positive. And I've come to look at it that way, that, you know, the mess-ups and the slip-ups are positive things as part of mortality to help us learn and grow. And even the prodigal coming back wasn't shamed as the savior or heavenly father. That to me is really powerful to help us understand how we should approach repentance and and the way you're teaching us. Talk about um You've kind of touched on this, but talk about a lot of Latter day Saints are really fearful of the future, um, of Armageddon, perhaps, and there's a lot of anxiety and stress. And I sort of, and there's another group that seem to kind of not worry about the future and don't have as much fear. Talk to how we can have less fear about the future and perhaps insights into our doctrine that should give us more peace and less fear.
1: And I think one of the things is to um, understand or to know that every single one of us who's ever lived on the earth is currently living on the earth or will live on the earth is a cherished son or daughter of heavenly parents. That is massive. And their work and glory is to bring to pass immortality and eternal life of every single one of their children. I think that helps considerably. I think also. Um, switching out Armageddon and apocalypse with Zion. So people think of the, uh, the, I think one of the sentences that scares people is that the earth will be consumed by fire. And unfortunately, since 1945, um, we think of nuclear holocaust and that we will be the cause of it. But the, the most dominant characteristic of the Holy Spirit is fire. Now, if we were wow. to replace the earth as consumed by fire, as the earth being consumed by the Holy Spirit, I, I think we are actually on a better course to what our end will be. And, um, and, and, and we, we have it. We have this pronouncement. Jesus says, I will come to the earth, to Zion, with Zion, and we will fall upon their necks, and they will fall upon our necks. And I will make my abode with them. You can't do that if the earth is destroyed. destroyed. That doesn't, that can't happen. And so I think there are those beautiful things that if we hang on to, if they resonate, if they expand your mind and your heart, they are true and beautiful and are of God. If what you hear or what you believe harrows the mind and constricts the heart, that is not God speaking.
2: I also find just a great deal of inspiration in the stance of both President Nelson and President Hinckley who preceded him. I always thought if anybody <laughs> is close enough to the center of inspiration to know what, with what attitude we should face the future, it's them. And they're incredibly optimistic and positive. They both say, you know, our, our best days are yet ahead of us that there is no reason to to, to fear and, and mourn and, you know, shelter in your fallout um, shelter that there, there is just a kind of sense of, no, we're just, we're just really well into the process of building Zion and just carry on with the kind of optimism that befits our doctrine.
0: I love that. And I do love those two prophets. Um, I've, Question just came to mind talk to parents that have kids that have stepped away from the church and they're worried about empty seats in the next life and their eternal family not being together talk to talk to families that have people that have left the church
2: well you know the <laughs> there's a reason why we used to celebrate what was called the principle of eternal progression We don't talk about that as much anymore, sadly, because there was a revolt against that doctrine in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. But Joseph Smith said nobody will ever stay in hell longer than is necessary for them to feel the pull that lifts them out. Brigham Young, Lorenzo Snow, uh, Wilford Woodruff, they all taught that God would not give up on any of us, and that we would eventually all, everyone without exception, find their way back into the presence of our Heavenly Father. Now, that's not a universalism per se. It doesn't mean salvation is never automatic. What it does mean is that nobody could better exemplify the words of, of Elder Hales than Heavenly Father himself. I remember as a father sitting in the congregation, not all that many years ago, when Elder, was it Robert D. Hales, right? Gave his, his, one of his last public addresses and he looked out with great beseeching in his eyes and he said, parents of the church, I plead with you. Never, never, never shut the doors of your heart to your children. And I think I I recognized in that moment, well, then certainly we don't have a heavenly father who will ever shut the door of his heart to us. Um, It was just taught as a truism that God will never give up on any of us. And as I said, we had a kind of reaction against this with Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie, who taught a different, more rigorous Old Testament version of a judgmental, wrathful God for whom there would be no second chances. That was never the mainstream teaching of the early church, and the church has never officially embraced that view. So, we are personally convinced, we, we don't teach this as doctrine, we teach it as our understanding of the historical record, that we believe it has always been the understanding of the founders of the church, that
1: there will always be eternal progression. And I, I think also we, we have sort of scriptural affirmation for that. Um, when Alvin died, it crushed Joseph. And um, his mother said he never recovered from that tragedy. And so as um, as Joseph is exploring the kingdoms
2: in section 76, in section 76
1: thank you, darling. And, um, you know, of course, Alvin is always there, always there in his mind. How does he fit into the gospel? He was not baptized. He died uncatechized. Therefore, he was going to hell or he was in hell. And so when, when he's reading about the great and noble peace, people of the earth, Alvin is there absolutely he is one so he is comforted alvin is not in hell he's okay. in the terrestrial kingdom but then in section 137 joseph expresses his absolute shock that alvin is in the celestial kingdom alvin has moved he's moved from the terrestrial kingdom to the celestial kingdom and that's documented in our scriptural text so i i think i think that would that helps me Considerably, I love having things that are supported by the scriptural text, and and that definitely does. So this idea that no one will be left behind—we're all progressing at at different times, different stages. We're all different, but that the promise is there: immortality and eternal life. This is God's work and glory, and I'm pretty sure they are up to the task.
0: (laughs) I love that, and you've helped me understand that, and I think. There's just a lot of you know this that there's a lot of parents that are just mourning um potentially not having kids with them in the next life or family members and I love that you're teaching if we really own our doctrine and yeah. we really believe that doctrine, we shouldn't have that fear and we should have hope and and just leave that at the savior's feet and control things that we can control and not have that fear right now of a possible future outcome um I've talked in this podcast about what I call my mini faith crisis that actually happened as a YSA bishop. And it was kind of around current issues, um, LGBTQ and some historical issues. But the thing that kind of got me through that um, was just the unique restored doctrine that came through the restoration and how it is. And that's one of the things I love about your work in this latest book, but just talk to our listeners. You've done that already in this podcast, just parts of, just the highlighted re- things that came to the restoration. You, in the first part of the book, you talk about premortal life and heavenly parents, a heavenly mother and a heavenly father. Talk just more about the ones that are most tender to you and most important to you. This that came through the restoration.
2: Well, for Fiona, right? Oh, really? her, you speak for me. Your life was was really transformed when you first really confronted Moses, chapter seven. Oh, yeah. And how deeply that worked itself into your heart. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and then also too, I we we are known for being a temple people. Um, and, and that's quite unusual, especially in Christianity. But if we look at what we are doing, we are sealing the entire human family to each other parents to children, children to parents. And that's been what we've been doing from the very, very beginning. It's- Can I tell the story of the Jewish? Oh, guys? yes, that would be lovely. Yeah. This, this,
2: this was really a fun moment. About, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, you may remember there was a big scandal erupted in the American media because it was discovered that Mormons were baptizing Holocaust. Yes. Uh, it turns out for those who did a little digging into it that a woman deliberately sneaked a name through so that she could go to the press and say Mormons were doing this. Well, anyhow, there was a lot of uh, media interest. I received a phone call from a Philadelphia radio station. They wanted to know if I would come on as a scholar, LDS theology, to talk about this practice. I said I would, not knowing that the host was himself Jewish. So on live national radio, his first question out of the gate was, what are you doing baptizing my dead ancestors? And wow. this was the answer I gave him. And, you know, I sensed the hostility. I knew this sure. was a fairly tense moment. Had to handle this right. I said, I said, Latter-day Saints believe that at the last day our Heavenly Father will prepare a feast for his entire human family. And we believe he wants every one of us there. And we take it as our responsibility and privilege to send out the guest list.
1: Invitations. The
2: invitations. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to attend, but we just think everybody should be invited. And that's why we baptize for the dead. And he said, what an incredibly beautiful idea. How do I get my name on that list? Wow. Now, certainly he was half joking, but he was half serious. He recognized in that moment, this is a religious tradition with a heart so capacious that they want to embrace the entire human family and take them to heaven with them. Now, it seems to me that that's a desire to make any Latter-day Saint proud of the underlying motivation behind our efforts to evangelize and, and build Zion. So I really thrill with the ambitiousness, the, 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 the audacity of that project. Now, we're going we're gonna to bring the whole human family into heaven with us. Nobody's going to get
0: left behind. I love that. And I love how unique that is to our doctrine. Yeah. I love that moment in that radio interview, Terrell. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, talk about this idea of heavenly parents and how unique that is. That's something that's a big part of the book. And for you know, for many men and women in the church, that's becoming a real core doctrine. I taught. I've done some podcasts with women that are um, survivors of sexual assault, and they've lost sort of trust with God for a brief period of time, and it was a relationship with heavenly mother because. It kind of navigated them through and be able to heal them in a way that was unique, and I never thought of that. And I, I just recognize that there's this beautiful doctrine of heavenly parents that is, that is wonderful for men and women of our church. Just and that's a part of your book. Talk to that for our listeners.
2: I, I think this is one doctrine that we have really, really misstepped on. We have concealed rather than celebrated this. But I want Fiona to to, to talk about this. Night. Talk about Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the point that she made. Yes. This is magnificent.
1: Um, well, if, if we have, if we believe in our Heavenly Mother, which we do, then the Trinity as it now stands is awfully lopsided. Um, and there's definitely...
2: A patriarchal monopoly.
1: But there is a patriarchal <laughs> monopoly, actually, Augustine, and Calvin and Luther would have been quite happy with that. But um, as Elizabeth Cady Stanton said, um, and I, she intuited this so brilliantly. It's like, it is lopsided. You know, if there is a father and a son, where is the mother? That there has to be a mother. You can't have a family without a mother. And, um, and I, I, I have been doing, um, research. My but you s- take oh, wait. A, a, okay. a bit further? Cause she said for women to actually achieve any condition of oh, equality, right. Right. two things would have no, to no, happen. That's absolutely right. And equality was one of them, which was why she was the suffragette. And which is, I think, why many LDS women.
2: But she said because be they a heavenly said that, mother, yeah, they, they said that would have to be rehabilitated exactly.
1: So she, she recognised the potency of that idea of a heavenly mother for full half of the world's population, knowing that they had somebody who uh, women had someone who understood them, um, understood their needs, understood their particular woundedness in in, in a way that that elevated. Um, that brought women closer to God um, and, and um, created a, a gentleness towards themselves that they, uh, that they had not had. Um, but, but yes, she said that this is the most important thing. We need to bring back Heavenly Mother because she was worshipped in the Hebrew tradition and lost with King Josiah, or actually extirpated with King Josiah but that we need to restore that. And, and we have done that. And then with the restoration of a heavenly mother, obviously comes the restoration of Eve and, and vice versa. So it it's, it's absolutely crucial. But it's so
2: remarkable that, you know, leading suffragette of America, yeah. she writes a woman's Bible. She says, this is what has to happen. And it's as if Joseph Smith says, okay, check, check. <laughs> now what? <laughs>
1: you know? Yeah, so it's it, it, it's it's glorious. It's it's a and, and, and until then, I feel that we've been living fractured lives in a fractured gospel. Um, it's not whole and entire, but bringing Heavenly Mother back into the equation, which Joseph did and Eliza canonized. It was canonized um, Eliza's hymn. We have rounded out the Godhead. It's like there's nobody missing. Uh, there is no human being who can feel alone, um, unloved, not misunderstood or not understood at all. Um, It it brings a wholeness and um, a healing. It it really does because the wholeness and healing mean the same thing to many people in so many lives. It's um, it's a rounded gospel.
0: I love that. And I just, I want that for my sons and my daughters. It's not just for my daughters. I want that for my sons and I want it for me, this this because I think it helps me be a better husband and father to have heavenly parents, a heavenly mother, and her influence on my. So I I recognize it's particularly it's sometimes helpful for my daughters, but I it's just it's been very helpful for me to understand and it gives me great hope for the future of our church because I agree with you we've we haven't talked about her the way I think she wants to be talked about. And her role of healing and helping that I think you're helping us better understand. And it's particularly the, the millennials that I do podcasts with, you know, this is something that's really important to them.
1: It's really important. Um, I I study the Second World War uh, for my master's degree. And it is interesting that um, it doesn't matter what battlefield you're on. The young men dying are calling out for their mothers without exception. Wow. They're calling out for their mothers. And I think we're still doing the same situation. We feel wounded. Um, part of us is dying inside. Um, and and so, yes, I think they were articulating um this absolute necessity of having a heavenly mother, somebody to call out to when we are struggling. Um, and and that, i I think that's very beautiful.
0: Talk about um sometimes. You know we and we talk about working out our own salvation or kind of this transactional relationship, and the more I think about you know we've it's maybe our puritan roots is well, I'll kind of do this on my own, or I'll kind of you know you you figure your path out, and I think as you're talking, we all need each other, and we're all as a group helping each other make our way forward and we we need each other, and we need vulnerable, honest connections with people to help us move forward including our relationship with heavenly parents and our savior. Any thoughts on just, you know, moving to a, I don't know what the right word is, but I think I, I just trying to move out of this transactional relationship with God to just a higher level of living.
2: Okay. Well, um, I'd like to say a couple of things about that. I teach, I used to teach romanticism and the romantics brought a lot of wonderful new ideas and art into the world. But the, the greatest, the greatest, I think miss service they performed was to ease our transition from a focus on religion to a focus on spirituality. I used to teach religion classes and the first day of class, I would frequently ask, how many of you in this class consider yourselves religious? And usually none or one or two hands would go up. And I'd say, how many consider yourselves spiritual? And every hand in the room would go up.
0: Fascinating.
2: Well, you know, it not not until... President Nelson, have we had a leader, I think, who recognized how insidious that development can be? Because religion, by virtue of its root, ligare, right, means connection, bonds, like ligament. So religion is emphatically a communal enterprise. It's about living the second great commandment and thereby fulfilling the first, right? It's about loving this community and learning how to to serve and be committed to the other. Spirituality is all about the self. It's about my development, my encounter with God. And so the church, I think, is fighting against powerful cultural currents in this regard, that people think they can fulfill the purposes of religion if they wander off by themselves and have an encounter with a sacred tree. When that has absolutely nothing in common with the kind of religion toward which Christ was trying to move us,
1: I think you're absolutely right, Richard. Um, When this this country, this country in particular, was founded on a particularly malevolent form of Puritanism that came over um, with the English Puritans, and it has um, seeped into every aspect of the society. Social, political, religious, and we are these are these are really destructive. These are the bonds with which we have been tied, and um, and we need to break out of them in order to to live full um, and generous lives. It was Terrell actually who I've read Moses Seven. I don't know how many times, but in his last pass at Moses Seven, he recognised that God the Father had reversed the two great commandments, which was absolutely extraordinary. You know, God the Father is is weeping because His children um, hate their own blood. They're, they're fighting and quarrelling with one another. And as parents, we all know that that our our greatest sorrow is when our children don't get along. Our greatest joy is when they when they can forge strong relationships with each other. And so, we worshiping God is serving each other that's how we worship God. And if we recognize that, I mean, it makes so much sense. They're not two separate things, but but that is how we worship God, by the way we treat each other, by the way we live our baptismal governance. And I, I, I just think that switch is absolutely important because God's concern is other. It's not himself. If, if, if we if we say that the first great commandment is, you know, God wants the glory. He wants all attention on himself. What sort of a God is that? But we as Latter-day Saints worship a God whose priorities are reversed. It's not himself about which he's concerned um, or they are concerned. It is the children about whom they are concerned. And any glory and any worship we can give to God is to, is to take care of each other. Well, that with each other.
0: that brings tears to my eyes, to be honest, and I just think of a great awakening. I'm sensing, particularly with younger Latter-day Saints, looking at just their Bittes and Covenants in the context of who are the most marginalized groups of people and what's my responsibility to them, or Mother Earth and environmental issues. Exactly. And, um, and so that's been fascinating for me, and, and I love that. And to me, that's a sign of just more light and knowledge and and a sign of our society moving in the right direction. Um, just listeners, um, it's, you know, you're not seeing Terrell and Fiona interact, but I'm um, tenderhearted for just the way you interact. You're, you don't talk over each other. You remind each other sometimes of a name. Um, you turn to each other for your own thoughts. And it's, I hope you're picking up on that. It's, it's not a central part of the podcast, but it's just, it's part of their ministry is, you know, the way they support and, and, you know, it's one plus one equals three. They're accomplishing things in the way they support each other that they couldn't do individually. And it's a beautiful part of your ministry. And I'm seeing that just over the Zoom call. And it's helpful for all of us. Tell in this last segment just anything you'd like to share with our listeners and also where to, where to buy your book.
2: well marketing the book has been a bit of a fiasco we're running into all kinds of corporate incompetence it was supposed to be available on Amazon as of December 1st they can't seem to get their system straightened out so um, we hope in the next few days it'll be available at Amazon Deseret Book also has it listed already and they should be shipping uh, orders as soon as next week uh, about I guess about the 10th or so of December we hope Um, was that Was there another question?
1: Was that? Yes, I think
0: there was, but I forget. Just, just, you know, so um, I encourage listeners to go to Amazon, go to Desert Book um, to get this book. And it sounds like by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be more available. But just anything you'd like to share in closing with our listeners?
2: I'll end with one thought and then, then, is that? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, You know, it's interesting. I was asked to speak, to be a guest lecturer in a class this last week at BYU on diversity. And somebody was wise enough to recognize that one of the main kinds of diversity that we have to learn to dignify and countenance in the church is diversity of faith. And um, so I, I talked about the way in which the Lord values and has, has, has made a special point of referring to the incapacity for knowledge, those who live their lives with uncertainty or doubt has been its own class of spiritual gift right he says in section 46 to some is given to know but then he says and you have to keep in mind this is a spiritual gift to some is given to believe and not know and so i i feel that there are so many people in the church we have encountered who feel on the margins or peripheries or undervalued because they can't march to the podium on fast sunday and say i know and um I would just encourage them to reread that description of themselves as itself constituting a spiritual gift. I think it's a greater spiritual gift because it enables us to to risk and to be vulnerable and to exercise our will in a meaningful decision to affirm our faith in Christ, even in the absence of certain knowledge. And I guess I would close by quoting what I what is my favorite my favorite two testimonies in Scripture. And one is, comes from Nephi when he is asked about his interpretation of certain things in the vision. And he says, um, I know that God loveth his children, but I don't know the meaning of all things. Or the blind man in the temple who is asked about Christ. And he says, well, I, I, don't, I don't know anything except that I was blind and now I see. I think these are both beautiful examples of a willingness to be humble in the face of our incapacity to affirm everything we'd like to be able to affirm and, uh, to just testify of those things that we know. And I, I know that this is the most incredibly generous and exciting, logically and aesthetically compelling set of doctrines that has ever been propounded. And, uh, and that's my testimony, and I'm grateful for that. <laughs>
1: um, there are very few women um, that we happen upon in the in early Christianity, in fact, in any of Christianity. um but there's there's this um, beautiful woman. Her name is Macrina. She was the eldest sister of Gregory of Nyssa, who also had a a really beautiful, all-encompassing view of God's love for us and the gospel. But I think most of Gregory, unfortunately, we don't have any of Macrina's writings, but, but just from the things that we do have, her influence on Gregory was enormous. She says, love is the foremost of all excellent achievements and the first of the commandments of the law. Love is the life of God, and it cannot be otherwise, since perfect beauty is necessarily lovable to those who recognize it. And out of this recognition comes love. The life of God consists in the eternal practice of love, and this life is wholly beautiful, and because beauty is boundless, love shall never cease." And then from the scriptural text, uh, my, my very favorite favorite quotes are Romans, Romans 8, and it, it goes along with this, the last two verses 38 and 39. "For I am persuaded." that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God.
0: Wow. Thank you, Terrell and Fiona. Um, Our daughter Emily has been a TA for you, and you have been a great influence in her life, and she's off to new and bigger things. And on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for your life ministry. Thank you for this later bo- latest book. Once again, listeners, the book's name is All Things New Rethinking Sin, Salvation, and Everything in Between. And we'll sign off. This is Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.